All right, today's scripture reading comes, we're back in the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 1 through 21. This is God's holy word. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisee rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon had related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agreed, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild, rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from, the, from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but this is the word of God stands forever. All right, good morning to you all again. Uh, Brother Mark, thank you for that testimony. Uh, just greatly encouraged by how you delight in God's grace. So thank you so much. The, uh, the last time... We are in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas had returned to Antioch uh, after their probably uh, more than a year-long missionary journey. Okay? And um, at this point in our story, one important thing to, to note is that there is real tension between the church in Jerusalem Right, which, which you can consider the, the mother church. That's where this all began, right? There was a gospel explosion. 
uh, and the gospel is spreading through the region uh, from Judea and beyond, right? And it eventually reached Antioch. And so this church in Antioch, actually, if you look at the map, Jerusalem's actually in the southern region, okay? And Antioch's in the north, right? But the reason why when you read the passage, it says, like, you know, people went up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is in higher terrain, right? It's higher territory. Uh, so you have Jerusalem here, you have Antioch here, but you have two different kinds of churches, right? The church in Jerusalem primarily consisted of Jewish Christians, okay? And the church in Antioch consisted mainly of Gentile Christians. And because of the demographic, there was some natural tension that existed, which is an important point to keep in mind as you read this passage, okay? And so you have the Jewish Christians, right? And, and these were those who grew up in this very well-defined Jewish culture and tradition. And so in this, at this point in the story, uh, they were trying to figure out how this gospel of Jesus Christ was meant to change things about their religious practices, right? It wasn't an easy question to answer, right, given their rich history and culture. And we're told that some people within this Jerusalem church basically concluded that the external symbol of circumcision, along with some other Mosaic laws, they were viewed to be non-negotiable requirements for salvation. Like you had to keep them in order to be counted as saved. And so think about the context for a moment, right? You have Paul and Barnabas, they complete their missionary journey, and they, they give this mission report to the church of Antioch that consists mainly of Gentile Christians. And then you have these people right, who came from the church of Jerusalem confronting these Gentile Christians in Antioch saying, verse 1, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? This was a, probably a shocking message to them. This is a, essentially a direct assault against the gospel of grace that they received from the apostles. Now, when I really try to understand what it must have been like to grow up as a Jewish person, and I think I can at least sympathize with those who believe that it was necessary to be circumcised. After all, circumcision was a very important requirement that God had placed upon all the Jewish men as a visible sign, right, that God was, was going to set apart his people, right, a holy people for himself. And that was their custom for many decades and even centuries. So I, I could understand where they're coming from. But no matter how much I'm able to sympathize with them, and no matter how well-intentioned these men may have been, to believe that circumcision or any of the other ceremonial laws were necessary for salvation was to miss the point of why God had put those laws in place to begin with. I'm hearing like slight feedback, FYI. 
So I want, I want us to pause here just for a moment and, and remind all of us of, of what is true about God's law. You know, one of the most important functions of God's law is to expose our sin, right? It's to, it's to expose our flaws, our shortcomings, our uncleanliness, so that we could recognize our need for a Savior. That, that's one of the primary purposes of why the law was given. So it was a big mistake then, and it is still a big mistake now to look at God's law and conclude that unless I keep this law, I cannot be saved. You know, unfortunately, in some parts of the church, drinking and smoking have been treated like that. Okay, and I'm personally no fan of like drinking and smoking, but you can't, you can't, you can't treat drinking and smoking like you do circumcision. Like you can't say, unless I quit drinking and smoking, I cannot be a true Christian. That's going too far. You know, the secular culture has their own righteous requirements as well. You know, uh, you hear this sort of put this way, unless I identify with a particular group and follow their rules, I cannot be a good person. And you, you cannot be a good person either, right? Unless you identify with us. It's the same, it's the same thing. It's the same idea. But instead of speaking of God's, God's righteousness, you know, people love to establish their own stringent moral codes and standards of righteousness, and they really believe that they can save themselves by doing these things, by following these rules. It's worth thinking about why people get themselves in so much trouble. I, I personally believe it's because they tend to have, let me say we, let me include myself, you know, we tend to have such a high view of ourselves while at the same time having such a low view of God and his holiness. I believe that that is the most common reason why people miss the gospel in our day. You know, people have such, an, a, such a high view of self, right? They give themselves the authority to actually define their own reality, including what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. They, they think they can define what sin is, right? They believe that God's standards of holiness are malleable and negotiable. They think they can just tinker with these things, right? That's having a high view of self, and a very low view of God and his holy, righteous standards. And if that's what you believe, if, if that's how your mind works, that you, you are this high and holy, and God is like a little pawn in your hand, then you know what? The gospel, which declares forgiveness for sinners, will never resonate in your hearts. And the gospel will never produce any kind of relief or joy in your lives. Do you know what my honest response to the gospel was as an incredibly self-centered and self-absorbed teenager? And I confess that I still sometimes struggle with this, because we're not perfected yet. 
but I was, I was really, really bad when I was younger. It's like I knew the gospel in my head. I grew up in the church, you know. I, I knew the right answers, but my heart was not moved by the gospel at all. You know? The gospel did not make much sense to me right here. Like Jesus died for my sins? Well, <laughs> were my sins that bad that he actually had to die for me was my honest heart response. Don't you sometimes think like that, you know? God, if you say that you're a good God, why can't you just save everyone was what I was really thinking during Sunday school. And that is how a carnal mind and an unregenerate heart responds to the gospel. There's a very shallow understanding of who God actually is. But eventually, by God's grace, after hitting rock bottom in my life, I would say both emotionally and spiritually, when I was around age 20, the gospel came alive within me, and I came to understand the depth of my sin and how even my best deeds were but filthy rags before a holy God. That passage made sense to me for the first time, really. It resonated. It's like, ah, that's what it meant. Now I can not just understand it or or think I know it here, but I can really understand it here. And eventually I was able to confess that I was not able to keep God's law perfectly, which is why I needed a Savior. I needed someone who could perfectly keep these laws on my behalf, and I, I came to see why the gospel is so precious. I was finally able to truly appreciate the work Jesus had done for me, and I was able to find such comfort in the fact that salvation was by grace and not by works. We often take that truth for granted, don't we? But I want you all to remember that virtually every other religion and every other belief system essentially holds to a salvation by works approach to life which means that salvation by works is the default mode of the sinful and prideful human heart. So brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning and if you believe that salvation is by grace and not by works, it's because God has done a supernatural work in your heart. Praise God if he did that. You know, belief in the gospel doesn't just happen on our own accord, right? To believe in this kind of grace, you actually need grace. And so be thankful for the grace that enables you to believe. Looking back at our passage today, you know, for the Jerusalem church, the relationship between God's law and the gospel was still an unsettled issue. People were still confused. And so this was such a crucial time for the leaders of the church to clarify what the gospel truly was. So much was at at stake here, if you really think about it. This is a huge, this very important chapter, Acts chapter 15, (laughs) considered Bible trivia. You know, when did the Jerusalem council meet? Oh, when did the council meet? Acts chapter 15, right? That passage, this chapter is very important. John Calvin once wrote that Christianity would have come to nothing 
if Paul had yielded to the demands of the circumcision party here, is that big of a deal? So thankfully, when confronted by these bullies right, from the circumcision party, Paul and Barnabas, they boldly stood their ground. And I, I call these men bullies because later in verse 24, we learn that these men were not even authorized by the Jerusalem church to make this visit. It says that they weren't even given instruction to, to come there, to, to go there, which tells me that they were just troublemakers, right? They just had a mind of their own, and, and they just decided to not even speak to leadership of the church, and they just kind of went along and did their thing. In other words, they were rebels. They were mavericks. And it says that Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And so things got heated and so Paul and Barnabas, they knew that this issue could not be settled then and there. They had to bring this issue and resolve it in collaboration with the leaders in Jerusalem. It just wasn't just a one church matter. This was a, a big church issue. Like uh, Brother Mark said, it was a big C issue. And so the Antioch church wisely chose to send a delegation to the Jerusalem church to settle this matter once and for all. And, and this led to a historically significant meeting that is commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Council. All right? And at this council meeting, I mean, there's much that can be said here, but I, I don't have time to, to cover all the verses. I just want to say that two of the main leaders of the Jerusalem church, right, uh, the voices of Peter and the voice of he said, the voice of Peter and the voice of James are highlighted here. And what makes Peter's testimony especially noteworthy is in the fact that, let's be honest here. I mean, if you know anything about their history, Peter and Paul. By the way, I have a younger brother, Peter, okay? It was intentional. Uh, my sister's not married, by the way. But, um, this is Peter and Paul. But you've got to understand that these guys didn't always get along, and uh, there, there was a major incident a few years back, right? And so their, their relationship was very likely strained at this point, right? Remember how Paul publicly rebuked Peter <laughs> after noticing that he was separating himself from the Gentiles once the, you know, once these men from the circumcision party showed up, you know, Peter was... Sort of, he was looking like a coward. He was looking like a hypocrite. And Paul, the bold apostle, calls him out in public. How do you think Peter would have felt? You know, I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he responded in a godly way, but I don't think any of us would have appreciated what Paul had done in that setting. And in this passage, I mean, they're, they're in Jerusalem here. And so Peter had home court advantage, so to speak. And so if, if he was a vengeful person, he could have used his clout to oppose Paul and sharply divide the church, right? If he had any kind of malicious intent, he could have done that. But thankfully, Peter chose the godly and more principled approach, like, though his relationship was somewhat strained, he understood that his role as an apostle of Christ was first and foremost 
to maintain the integrity of the gospel. And I really appreciate that about Peter. He wasn't a perfect man, but in this case, he did well. And we can learn from his example here. And with that context in mind, I want you to listen to his words one more time. And I want you to envision yourselves testifying of the gospel in your own context with such boldness and clarity, because that is what we see here. Verse 6, it says, The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter, it's his turn now, it's his turn. He stands up and he says to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Let me jump a few verses. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples? What's a yoke? Yoke is that big wooden plank, right, that you place upon oxen as they're working the ground. It's an unbearable weight. And Peter says, why are you placing this yoke, this unbearable weight referring to God's law? right, on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. That's a very clear statement, affirming that salvation is by grace and not by keeping the law of God. And after Peter speaks, the assembly grows silent, we see. And and Paul and and Barnabas, they they share a few more words. And after that, uh, you see James, right? James is another person I want to highlight here, right? He was one of Jesus' brothers. He was also viewed as the main leader Right? He, I, I, many people believe that he, James actually had a greater following in this church than Peter did. Right? He was the main leader of the Jerusalem church at that time. And so he stands up and it's his turn to speak. And as far as this debate is concerned, James essentially gives a closing argument and he seals the deal. That's his role. And while fully agreeing with Paul and Peter, that salvation is by grace alone and that circumcision should not be made a requirement for salvation, James makes this interesting proposal that, honestly, it it has stirred some debate among Bible scholars and theologians. And I think if I read it to you slowly, you'll be thinking, that's kind of weird. You might not be sure what to make of this, and that's okay. Right? This is not an easy passage to interpret, actually. So verse 19, here's what James says. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And so that's, that's fine. That's clear. In other words, he's affirming what Peter just said. But he, here's what is different, okay? He says, 
But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols. That's one, right? We should write to them to abstain from sexual immorality. That's two. Abstain from what has been strangled. That's three. And abstain from blood. That's four. So four things. James wants the Gentile Christians to abstain from. And then he concludes, it gives us reason. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read in every Sabbath in the synagogues, right? And so his basic argument is, look, wherever, whichever city you go, the, the law of Moses is read, and this is what the law of Moses says. These, these are like the ceremonial laws, and, and so he's asking Gentile Christians to understand and be sensitive uh, to, to what the Jewish customs are. And so that, that, could be, that could sound a little confusing given what he just said about circumcision. So first, let me be clear about what James is, is not saying, okay? He's not saying, look, okay, brothers, I agree that circumcision is not required for salvation, but look, there are these other laws that must be kept instead in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying, right? He's not replacing one law with several other laws. That would make absolutely no sense given the fact that the main conclusion of this council was to declare that salvation is by grace alone. Okay, can we agree on that much? I hope so. As I mentioned earlier, there's, there's some debate over how James's proposal should be taken exactly, but in my opinion, and if you want, you know, other people's opinions, I'll, I'll give you the commentaries I have, okay? <laughs> In my opinion, okay, after doing a good amount of reading, I think it's best to take it as James's attempt to find a sensible way to preserve the fellowship among Jewish and Gentile Christians. Right? He, he knew there was tension between the two groups, and so he wanted to find a way to preserve the fellowship of believers during this particular moment in history. You know, James was essentially asking the Gentile Christians to be mindful of his Jewish sensibilities. Let me put it this way. Let me give you an example. We'll, we'll uh, try to work this out so it kind of makes more sense to you. Question. Is it a sin to eat meat that has been sacrificed to idols, right? Let me, let me contextualize that a bit. Would it be a sin for you to eat meat that was offered to Satan at a satanic ritual? You know, Paul later writes that actually it's not a sin to eat such meat if your conscience allows it. Because in Christ, all foods are declared clean. That's, that's the primary teaching, but there's a qualification, okay? And if, for those of you who know your Bibles, you know that it's not that easy, right? It's not that simple. He says, but if our eating or drinking causes one of our brothers and sisters to stumble... And we're told that we should refrain from flaunting our Christian freedom. We should refrain from eating such meat, right? at least 
in front of them. Right? That, that's the general teaching. And that's what I believe James is essentially getting at. You know, the reality was that in the first century Gentile culture, there were idols everywhere. There were, there were pagan rituals done, you know, so often. And so the, the food culture was very loose. And so James, who was trying to be a good pastor and elder for his predominantly Jewish flock, was asking the Gentile Christians to be considerate. Can you be considerate toward your other brethren in Christ? Let me put it a little differently. Uh, this next question may upset some of you. <laughs> but it, it's to make a point. It's to kind of, I guess, uh, drive the point home, okay? Question. Is it wrong to eat dog meat? That, that, that'll make some of you cringe, right? You know, I, I don't even know what the law is in the U.S. I'm, I'm assuming it's illegal to eat dog meat here in the U.S. But my question is, would God consider it a sin when people order dog stew in certain parts of Korea? Okay, you may look at me differently if I told you that, you know, in my high school in Korea, my friends, my close friends, they actually brought dog stew for lunch. And uh, I, I, okay, you know what? I, I never took part in that. <laughs> but that was sort of the custom. They would eat dog stew, and it was supposed to help kind of their stamina. Is that wrong? Is that sinful? The answer would be no, it's not sinful. But it would stumble a whole lot of Western Christians, right, if East Asian Christians flaunted their Christian freedoms in certain social contexts, don't you think? So it wouldn't be unreasonable for, like, Western church leaders to ask their East Asian Christian brothers, sisters to be mindful, right, of the, of the food sensibilities of the Western church in certain contexts. I would think that, that, that wouldn't be unreasonable. And I believe that something like that is going on in this chapter. Right? Now, in regards to the instruction that Gentiles should abstain from sexual immorality, you know, that, that to me and to many others is more of a head-scratcher because it's like, why would James include that? Isn't that like a no-brainer? And by the way, sexual sin is in a different category than these other three things mentioned. These other three things mentioned are considered to be ceremonial laws, whereas sexual sin is, is in the category of moral law, right, that transcends culture, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a different kind of law. And so it's a bit of a head scratch. I'm not sure exactly what to make of this, to be honest. But here's one perspective from a commentator that seems the most plausible to me. Okay, he writes like this. This requirement dealing with sexual immorality was, of course, not an optional standard of obedience like the other three. It may have needed special emphasis, though, and clarification because many Gentiles' consciences were so corrupted that they did not hold to a high standard of sexual purity. Right? That, that's one perspective. Right. And that could have very well been the case, you know, given how the Gentile culture was in those days, like the Roman culture, the Greek culture. 
So maybe James was just trying to emphasize the point, hey, you guys have to be mindful of the sexual immorality laws that ought to govern you. Maybe. I'm not 100% sure on that, but that, that is one perspective that seems plausible. Now, the bottom line is that James believed it was necessary to highlight these potential trouble areas given how the culture was at the time. And, and the council ends up accepting James's proposal, right, which, which they run on. And so, you know, in, in some we can say that the Jerusalem council accomplished two very important things. You know, one, it preserved the purity of the gospel. Okay? And two, it preserved the unity of the church. It's a very important accomplishment, which is something we should all be thankful for purity of the gospel, and the unity of the church. I want to bring this message to a close by pointing to the fact that the council's decision was received with great joy by the Gentile church in Antioch when they heard of the news, right? In Acts 15, verse 30, it says, so messages went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter, right, with the conclusion of the council, with the decision of the council. And verse 31, when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Right? They were singing like, praise, hallelujah to God, that the gospel is truly a gospel of grace and a gospel not of works. Brothers and sisters, I know that many of you are struggling with various trials and hardships. And I want to offer some perspective right, to allow you to really find some refreshment in the gospel this morning. First of all, wouldn't you say that it's true that life was far more difficult for Christians living in the first century? And yet, we're told that when, when these believers received this letter clarifying that salvation was by grace alone, these Christians rejoiced. There was much joy in their hearts. They were encouraged. And I don't mean to diminish the pain you may be experiencing in your own lives, but it, it is really important that we see things from a more biblical perspective if we want to faithfully endure through the hardships we face in life. And I want to say that if our hearts are no longer able to rejoice in the gospel, it could mean that we've lost an important perspective and that we've forgotten what the gospel actually saves us from. I'm hoping that this fictional email written by a troubled daughter to her parents will give you some needed perspective. Right? Basically, let me, let me set it up this way. Basically, there are these parents who poured out their life savings to send their daughter to a reputable college so that she could get a good education and do well in life. But turns out she is barely hanging on, you know, 
She's like not doing very well academically. She's squandering her days. She's not being responsible. And she's now making her parents regret even sending her to an expensive college. So here's what the daughter writes to her parents. Dear mom and dad, I thought long and hard whether I should share these details with you, but I finally decided that it would be best to fill you in on what's going on in my life. I'm sorry for my thoughtlessness and not having written before. Earlier this year, I was in a bad car accident and suffered from a severe concussion and had to spend several days in the hospital. Fortunately, the accident was witnessed by a guy named Roger who works at the local nightclub, and he was the one who called 911 for me. He also visited me in the hospital and took very good care of me. He's a good man, and we're planning to get married soon after his divorce is final. And I haven't gotten tested yet, but I think I'm pregnant. Given the circumstances, I won't be able to continue with school, so I will be dropping out soon. I'm so sorry. Please don't look for me. I will write to you again when things settle down. And what do you think the parents' response would be after receiving such an email? The parents were so shocked and worried, and they frantically tried to call their daughter, but she would not pick up. She was ignoring them. A few minutes later, they receive another email from her. Dear mom and dad, The email I sent to you earlier was a lie. There was no car accident. There was no concussion. I was not in the hospital. There is no Roger. I am not pregnant and will not be getting married anytime soon. I haven't dropped out of school. However, I am getting a D in art and an F in chemistry. (laughs) Your loving daughter, Jane. So... (laughs) How do you think the parents would have responded after receiving that email, hearing the news that her daughter is getting a D in art and an F in chemistry? They would have been, hallelujah, praise the Lord, all is well. This is great. Things are good now, right? Things are good. Brothers, sisters, do you see the connection I'm trying to make here? As we face the realities of life, all sorts of negative emotions tend to flood our hearts. You know, we we can get so angry because the way our husband or the way our, our wives treat us. And isn't it true, especially for those of you who are older, like the thought of divorce starts creeping in, right? The thought the thought of divorce actually starts to appeal to you. And you lose your temper with your kids because you just cannot stand the way they speak to you sometimes, right? Maybe some of you are so stressed from your job, it just sucks all your energy away. And that stress, it spills over into other areas of your lives and it affects your relationships. It just makes your lives much harder. That is what life often feels like. But it's during those difficult moments, brothers and sisters, that we need to remember the gospel of grace and what it has accomplished for us. 
This gospel of grace that saves us from our greatest enemy. This gospel of grace that promises that these trials we face in this earthly life are only temporary troubles that Christ has overcome through his death and life. So, brothers and sisters, if you can remember that you have been saved by grace, though life may seem impossible at times, you will be able to respond in faith with, it's going to be okay. Life is okay. It is all well in the Lord. I can endure through this because his grace for me is sufficient. When we consider the abundance of God's grace poured upon us, it should give us this kind of perspective. I mean, think about all of us now. Do you think that you've been given the privilege to come here in this place to worship because something you have done? Do you think you have earned this place? Was it your accomplishment? Was it your status or your intellect that drew you to God? No. It's because your life has been touched by the grace of God, right? Your, your heart beats for the Lord because of his grace and mercy upon you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every, every, not just some, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The Apostle Paul makes it clear that this is our reality as believers. We have been blessed this much. It is God's grace that floods into our lives. So, brothers and sisters, let's keep that perspective and live not as defeated Christians who are constantly driven by anger or worry or fear, but rather as Christians who know what it means to rejoice in the midst of life's storms because it's been made clear to all of us through the testimony of Scripture that we are indeed saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ once and for all. Amen? Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for revealing to us the truth of your gospel that we are saved by grace through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for making it clear to us that he alone is perfectly holy and that he alone is able to satisfy your righteous laws. Forgive us for even thinking that we can save ourselves by being good or by doing good in this world. Forgive us for living as if some form of religious righteousness or even some form of secular righteousness can save us. We declare and affirm the truth that we are justified by grace through faith alone and not by works, no matter how good those works may be. So we exalt Christ, our Lord and Savior, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. At this time,